The uh, wind has been blowing hard enough, though, with the rain that the fuses keep getting tripped, and so like parts of my house go without power because the power <laughs> line's getting blown around oh is so strong that it's doing something to the house. Oh, no. Yeah. Hey, desert problems. Yeah. It's all, well, it's also sort of uh, getting used to... Um, like, when we randomly lose power, there's no landlord we can call anymore. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Which is, you know, different. Yeah. Living in a major city, owning a home is just not even possible. I don't even know how much well, money especially you have San to Francisco. make. Yeah, like, every once in a while I look and it's like, oh, you want, you have a million dollars, which nobody has. You have a million dollars and then you don't get two bathrooms. So I'm going to spend a million dollars on one bathroom. It's just not going to happen. When Tess and I were looking for a house, we decided, okay, so what if we looked at houses that were, that were like a stretch for us in terms of price? Is there anything that's so much better that we want to go there? And then once right. we started doing that, just for shits and giggles, we started looking at things that were really a stretch. Like, yeah. what does two and a half million dollars buy you in Albuquerque? <laughs> right. uh, and it buys you the largest, most ridiculous mansion <laughs> you could you, you could think of with yeah. like 10 acres of land and an attached horse ranch. <laughs> just, yeah, standard stuff. Whenever I buy anything online, the like sorting when it's price high to low, I always wonder who is using that feature. Like who is like, I want to start with the most expensive things. And then it's (laughs) days like that. We are like, what's the most expensive house in this area? Like it's, it's for fun. It's never for like practical use. Yeah. That definitely seems like a sorting option that some engineers just put there because it felt necessary for completeness. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) For like balance. But who's using that? Yeah. Yeah, it was actually really funny. I got an email the other day from Zillow about a house I was looking at in Denver, apparently, that was having an open house, which I'm guessing Excellent. like must have sold five years ago, and now they're selling and now they're selling that house again. <laughs> because I haven't lived in Denver in, in years. Yeah. That's crazy though that they still have you like as listed as being interested. Yeah, I, I mean I guess that's the identifier for that sort of software, right? Is is the address. Yeah. Yeah. So what's new in the mobile world? Not too much. Still doing Android professionally and learning iOS on the side professionally. I I think the not being paid for it part makes it not professional. But so learning (laughs) iOS, uh, having a lot of fun there. Other than that, not too much. How about you? Same. (laughs) I've been working on a a project called Fast Attributes, which for Rails, it's a I've re-implemented a couple of classes in Rust that they were classes that are that are like known hotspots that there's a big enough performance impact from just rewriting those handful of classes to make it worthwhile. It, it worked out pretty well. It made Active Record twice as fast. That's huge. So, you know, a marginal improvement there. Yeah. I was actually I, and I was expecting 10%. It was it was really rather shocking. Yeah. How did you go about testing the speeds? So, right well, right now I'm trying to get a better idea of how it affects the total throughput of an actual app as opposed to just how it affects active record. Like I just went I just did some benchmarks on a couple of methods that exercise like most of the active record stack. Mm-hmm. Which is a macro benchmark for active record itself, but definitely a micro benchmark for Rails as a whole. Mm-hmm. So right now what I'm trying to do is deploy it on Shopify for a little while and just look at our new Relic stats bef- uh, before and after and see what it looks like there. The problem is it's, o- it's only compatible with Rails 5.2, and we're almost done migrating to 5.2, but we're not quite there yet. And I'm still not 100% sure that I've worked out all the bugs in this gem either. 
But really, it's mostly done. The hard part is that since it's written in Rust, and I can't have Rust as a dependency of Rails, I have to like figure out how to make sure that we automatically ship pre-compiled binaries for every platform imaginable. <laughs> Just every, at least every every platform that people are running Rails apps on. So probably probably not going to pre-compile yeah. for Android. Yeah. <laughs> or any ARM processor, really. Yeah. That's cool, though. How has that migration been like? I don't know anything about Rails or what a migration from versioning looks like. Is I mean, if you're only at 5.2, how often do they happen? So historically, one release happens per year, mm-hmm. or at least one, one non-bug fix release. But this was a much shorter release than, than uh, normally happens. I think it was about six months between, uh, between 5.1 and this. How difficult it is to upgrade kind of is just going to depend on how much you're relying on Rails internals. For a lot of apps, just the blocker, even if they're not relying on Rails internals, the blocker is waiting on all of their gems, which are relying on Rails internals to update. But at least for Shopify, it's gotten progressively easier with every version. And this was by far the easiest version yet, uh, to the point that 5.2 is not actually even out yet. Oh, wow. And this is the first time that we've ever finished the upgrade before the, before the final release. Which That's is really, awesome. Which is really cool. Because, you know, 5.0, we've finished the upgrade just in time for 5.1 to release. Yeah. And then 5.1, we kind of finished the update just in time for 5.2 to release. Yeah. Although 5.2 came out, you know, in half the time that 5.1 did, so that meant that we were yeah. twice as fast. That's impressive. Part of it for us has been implementing better processes for upgrading throughout mm-hmm. the organization, in addition to just Rails is breaking less with each, with each new version. Yeah. What kind of processes? You know, so when, when some method gets deprecated, it like Shopify is millions of uh, lines of code. So mm-hmm. any, any deprecation that gets reduced just creates so much noise that it's impossible to really do anything. But at the same time, we also, like, if we don't enforce, hey, no, you need to deal with this deprecation warning, it never gets done. Right. So what we, one of the things that we do now is we have a test, basically, that runs that has a whitelist of all of the known deprecation warnings that were happening in our test suite when we started working on the upgrade. And the test will fail if you have any... That it's actually it's not even a test, but basically deprecations will raise an exception unless it. it's in this white list of tests, which we're known to have these specific deprecations. So nobody can introduce new deprecated code or new code that is using deprecated methods once the upgrade starts. Spent a lot of that and a lot of just making sure that teams are aware that the upgrade is happening and what, what tests in the components that they own are failing and trying to shift the, you know, spread the responsibility for the upgrade more across the organization. What we're hoping to do now that we're finally kind of caught up is actually start running the master branch of Rails as part of our test suite. So rather than, you know, once a new version, the release calendar, the beta comes out, like we start to think about, okay, what's deprecated, what's what's changing, what's going to break, we can just sort of proactively be keeping an eye on things that are going to affect us, you know, all the time. Got it. And it's also useful for us on the Rails team because it also means that now we can much more easily like see how a change that we that we think is going to affect apps, see how it affects mm-hmm. Shopify, which you know is not a proxy for all apps, but is a very large app, yeah. and will like it will if it doesn't affect Shopify, it's pretty likely that it doesn't affect anybody. Yeah, because cool. Shopify is hitting every every ugly corner of Rails imaginable. <laughs> That's really neat. We're in the the time of year where Google starts releasing developer previews or like not even officially developer previews, but it's like the pre-pre-preview of like the next version of Android. And I'm always impressed by the developers who like track some of that stuff because it's like interesting sometimes to read if like you want to go digging through source code to see what 
changes are happening, but you have no idea, you don't have any context, you don't know how it's going to be used or what it's going to be used for. So it's all just kind of the speculation stage. And then at some point they release like a super preview. And I mean, they, they do it intentionally so developers can start using it and start reporting bugs. But I'm always curious, like, who are the people who are doing that? Because you can't do that on production code. So it's like, just on the side, you want to build apps to like help the community. It's kind of impressive and really nice. I guess I'm just not that nice. <laughs> sure. I, I just remember the last time I did any Android professionally, right around the time we were building the application, the developer preview for, I don't remember what version it was, but the first version that, in, that, that got rid of Dalvik and replaced it with Art. Oh, yeah. Which we soon realized that this app was just going to require Art to have reasonable performance because our frame rate was well over 60 on Art and we, we were struggling Ooh. to get 15 frames a second on Dalvik. Oh, gosh. <laughs> yeah. Not a fun time. Yeah. I just upgraded dependency the other day, and it's for the constraint layout dependency, which it's like auto layout if you use iOS. There were some subtle changes that don't raise any warnings or any errors, but basically they improve the library to make it so you need to explicitly declare all of the anchors for you know how you want to lay something out. But before they were kind of helping you a little bit, so you didn't have to necessarily declare if you if you had top and left, they were fine. But now they're like, we need a third anchor point, which is generally good, except that it meant that I had to go through the entire app that I was working on and like just look to see if layouts looked wrong because there was no oh. like official warning. So you're like, I guess I just have to use the whole app. And like, thankfully, it's a small app. But I just keep thinking about like, if you work at a company with a much larger app, this could be a week's worth of work if just to upgrade it because like everything would just be slightly shifted or off in a way that you did not expect. Right. So it was a yeah, and that's the sort painful. of thing that I'm guessing not a lot of people have uh, automated tests for. Yeah. And it's also like one of those examples, again, where like I was using a beta version. So like if I wasn't using it at all, it would have been fine. But because I was using a beta upgraded to the, like the stable version. So they mm. did the right thing for sure. And I was playing it fast and loose, I guess. <laughs> now, is that the sort of thing? Is that st does that sort of stuff still get shipped through support? What, what, what the, what the support library? library yeah, yeah support called, library. It's technically like in the support package, but it's its own dependency. So you can I upgraded that independent, which is really nice. Okay. So when you upgrade that, it, it, even though they they usually release that tied to the releases of Android, right? But it's not actually... Yeah. They'll release like support library updates. And so typically all of the libraries get updated at once. But in this case, this is a, it was just on its own. Makes sense. Yeah. I'm trying to think what else. Have you played with Flutter at all? No. What's Flutter? Have, so have you heard of React Native? Yes. It's another React Native. But it's written in Dart as opposed to in JavaScript. And it's, I think Google released it as like another cross-platform way to build apps once and have them run twice kind of thing. But we had uh, someone in the San Francisco office port a native iOS app to Flutter. And it actually is, it was a much smoother process than my React Native experience. For React Native, I think the problem is you have to have like a proper iOS setup and a proper Android setup to like switch between running both. And for Flutter, it was a lot smoother. You just needed a, like an emulator or a phone for either platform to get them running. And the, the warnings are much more helpful. It's like, this is what's wrong. Here's how you fix it. And it's like so pleasant. Whereas in React Native, it's just, I don't know, like, <laughs> it's so hard to tell if it's a JavaScript problem, if it's a compiler issue, if it's an Android issue or an iOS problem. So the error mm -hmm. handling for Flutter is much better. Well, that's good. Yeah. I'm, I'm still not sold on any of the cross-platform toolkits yeah. like if you need if you need your app to be cross-platform just make a mobile web app <laughs> yeah i am totally in agreement the platforms have different ui expectations that yes. you can't really easily abstract into like 
something that programmatically is the same, but, but, but represents these two completely different paradigms in the UI. I also think not even at a UI level, like at a, I don't know what the level below that is, but like the way that lists are shown on both platforms, for example, that is already an abstraction. So if you're trying to have another abstraction that applies to two abstractions, it's not going to work well. I think memory and performance are always my biggest reasons why not. And then from coming from mobile, honestly, here, I've been on a couple of React Native projects, but mostly as like a handyman, just like coming in and fixing bugs or helping people debug things. And my frustration is, oh, and this probably is just a web versus native, is how non-deterministic everything is in web. It's so much more difficult to figure out, is it my setup? Is it someone else's environment? Is it a dependency? I don't, like, what version of Yarn am I using? Like, all of that stuff is just so much harder. Whereas on native, it's like, this is the version you're using. Are you using the same? Cool. Sure, but that's really only a problem if you're doing, like, really, really heavy JavaScript. Yeah. You know, a lot of what you would do in a, in a mobile app would actually need to be client-side, but you can get away with server-rendered HTML <laughs> a lot farther than you'd think with just the little sprinklings of JavaScript to, you yeah. know, do whatever. But I'm not a big fan of, like, React or Angular. or Like I said, I mean, well, actually, for all the reasons that you just listed, yeah, there are some apps where it makes a lot of sense, mm-hmm. where you are doing a lot of things that specifically need to update the UI without doing a page reload. There, I mean, I'm not saying that those apps don't exist. They do. I just don't think that most people who are reaching for these tools have those kinds of apps. Yeah. I don't know that you need to replace, you know, the concept of page navigation if yeah. all you need is just, you know, a few interactive elements in an otherwise static website. Yeah. Maybe static's not the right word, but you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Yep. Things, that, things that, that HTML provides proper abstractions for. Right. Yep. Yeah, it's always, it's interesting because I think so much of like the React and functional, I don't know what you call it, but how popular that became in web started like creeping into mobile. And I think sometimes there are languages and places where functional program makes a lot of sense. And then there are times where you're adding those two abstractions on top of other things where it stops making sense. Like it's really difficult to make an Android app purely functional because like you're fighting a framework that does not want to be purely functional. Like there's state in places. (laughs) And so that's just my problem with it is when people are like, this is like, there's like a, this dogma and they're like, we have to do it this way. And you're like, well, this doesn't make any sense. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> Damn, we have to disagree on something. Yeah. Well, so, you know, I, I actually did try and go full FRP on Android. Oh. Back when I was doing the 3D rendering stuff. Oh, yeah. We were using Scala for it and we did stuff like captured all touch events and turned it into a, into an infinite stream. And so nice. that way we could like then describe whether the user is pinching as a function that operates on that stream of, of touch events. And then uh. we could uh, determine the zoom level based on a function of the pinches. And we could determine the rotation based on, on a function of the touch events. And then take those two streams and combine them into a function that returns the, you know, the camera position. But getting that to be performant, that was part of yes. why we needed art for reasonable performance. Yeah. Because that produced a lot of garbage. Yeah. I mean, there are, there are reactive wrappers in Android that'll let you do things like that now that have taken into account, you know, whether the phone's being rotated and all of that stuff. So it's at least a little bit more performant, but I think it's still, there has to be a balance. Yeah. Because we're limited. Did you ever play around with uh, Project Tango at all? No, because it only works on some devices and I don't have a like Tango supported device. Oh, did they actually ever, ever like release it on consumer phones? It was, I'm not sure. I think they did, but it was like one specific Nexus phone. Huh. 
that that was the last I had. Oh, they've already. I just the first thing on Google is Google's Project Tango was shutting down. So yeah, it was an interesting API that they had for that. Yeah, one of the biggest issues was like you had you had to operate in three spaces. You had basically I don't remember what the term was, but it was like the space that represents the position of the device when it first booted up. Uh huh. And then you've got another space that represents the position of the device now. Mm-hmm. And then you've got, you know, world space of whatever you're trying to do. And right. what was really annoying was the space where the device started up and the space where the device is now used different axes for up. Mm, of course, yes. So if you if you ever forgot to properly transform that matrix, you would end up with really funky, uh, subtle little bugs. But once it, once you got everything working, it was the only it was the only thing I've ever messed around with AR with that I was able to actually you know, get something to stably just float in space with no actual markers whatsoever. That's cool. In AR, they call it markerless if it's bring your own marker, where it's like, you know, right. you put a piece of paper on the table and that's your marker. That's not really markerless. That's Yeah, <laughs> just BYO. Tango was yeah. the only thing that I ever saw actually do truly markerless, where you could literally have the thing just floating in space with yeah. very little visual information around it and have it actually, you know, stay there stably. Yeah, I remember when... The iOS version, AR Kit or something, I'm sure, name like that. When that came yep, out, I, and I saw a lot kit. of people, like a lot of developers who were able to do something pretty quickly or like get something running. It was like a dog or a coffee cup. And the cool thing was that that was the first time I ever used Dribble and was like, oh, this is actually really cool and useful and not just like the same kind of stuff you see on Dribble all the time. But it was interesting use cases for AR that I had not necessarily thought of. But like for Airbnb, that was my the one that really stuck out where when you get to someone's house for them to tell you like to leave an AR video of like how to set the thermostat. So it's like not just walk over to thermostat, do this, but like you can see it in person. So mm-hmm. for a visual learner, that was awesome. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And like Shopify has been doing stuff with AR and VR a lot too. I'm honestly not sure how VR is ever going to come into play, but AR yeah. kind of makes sense if you're like shopping for something that you would want to put in your house like furniture or yeah. artwork yeah. or something like that. Yeah. Ikea has a, a pretty cool AR integration, I think. I don't know if it was just their magazine, but like you can see you can see the pieces in your home, which is really cool. Yeah, so back when I was working on that, this was like, gosh, three years ago now, I think at least. Mm-hmm. The big library that everybody was using was called Vuforia, which is made by Qualcomm. And it, wor- it worked reasonably well. Yeah. I would assume everything is way better now than it was back then. I'm curious what's changed there was only so far improvements to processors were going to get you. It does seem like there needed to be just something. <laughs> I, I, like, I want, I'm thinking about all the things that Tango had that normal phones don't. And I'm just like, yeah, any one of those helps. Because it had the depth sensing camera, which alone makes a huge difference. Actually, that one alone probably makes the biggest difference for AR. Because yeah. you can figure out X and Y after that. But once you actually have Z, yeah. you, can, you wouldn't be able to make something float in space and have it stay still. But you'd be able to stick something on a table with no right. other specific markers and you should be able yeah. to keep it stable with just a depth sensing camera then it had the fisheye lens which like would probably just generally help everything and then it had the yeah. much 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 more precise accelerometer which i feel like are improving in phones anyway are they i'm actually asking i don't follow that i don't know if that technology is like dramatically changed oh i'm not sure i just would imagine that that's the kind of stuff where like when you're improving things like it seems like it's getting that that will be like as part of the things we're going to up there upgrading every time but i also i'm just guessing sure so have you been working on any any uh, interesting projects lately it's like a trap question because if i say no and my client listens then they hear it so <laughs> everything is going really well 
See, the thing is, nobody knows exactly what the delay is between when we record and when it's come out. And we haven't said anything that dates this episode yet. So <laughs> That's very true. I was for, and still I am working on this, uh, an app for scoring baseball games. Because scorekeeping is just a, a really, it's a huge pastime in baseball. It's not for, interestingly enough, like you want to keep it as accurate as possible. But the reality is with StatCast, there are all these other... I mean, baseball is a sport for statistics, and so there are official scorekeeping, official scorekeepers at every game, and there's data going back to the beginning of the game. So for people who bring their own scorebooks to a game, it's to make the game more fun to watch, but it's not necessarily, you're not going to get everything 100% perfect. And if you don't, okay, like, I don't even know if you, for people who do scorekeep, like, do you read the books later, or is it just like for in the moment fun? Does scorekeeping mean something different than what I think it does? Because isn't there just like a board with the score on it? So it's a little bit more in depth than that. So you would mark, if you, like a traditional scorebook looks kind of like a weird grid where each row is a player, like the batting lineup, and then each column is an inning. And so you mark who gets a single, if someone gets a double. So it's a little bit more detailed. It's the more granular for what you're seeing up on the board. So the board has right. hits, runs, and errors. And this is like, how did the hits happen? How did the runs happen? All that. So this is like the numbers that would be required to figure out each player's exactly. batting average. Yep. And so I thought it was the perfect excuse for a mobile app because there's just so much opportunity to make things smoother, to be more predictive. So you're not having to do all the like even fetching the batting lineup from an API that saves you having to write every player's name and all that kind of stuff. And it's been incredibly difficult to model the app because the game of baseball is so complicated and there's so many edge cases and slight differences and things that just don't if you were going to design a software program, you would not end up with the game of baseball as it is today. But <laughs> if, ba- if baseball were an application? Yeah, if baseball were an application, it would not be the way that it is now. Or would it? I mean, or is it just a legacy app that, that, that's come up with yeah. all, of these, all of these fun edge cases all over time? <laughs> baseball is a legacy app. I mean, that's so accurate. But it's great. There are like all these, even as someone who like, I'm a pretty big baseball fan, I in working on this app have had to Google a few rules to be like to get clarification on like just edge cases of like, is this even even physically possible? So for example, one of the things that makes things kind of complicated is if you hit a ball and a fielder catches it, that's a fly out. So you hit a fly ball, someone catches it and out is recorded. But if someone advances, then it's a sacrifice fly. So like, there's like so many different states that you have to keep track of and then keep updating. And then there's all these rules about when the ball is dead. So like if there's two outs, there are I mean, different isn't rules. Isn't it always and if dead because it's a ball and not a living creature? Yes. But in the game of play, <laughs> depending on how many outs there are and if there are runners on, again, different rules. So it's just the most horrible combination of if statements. Right. Because there's just no other way to get around it, really. If statements aren't inherently bad when they no. make sense. No, yep. It's also a challenge because when you're building an application, like a software program for something that already exists in the world, naming becomes really weird because like a manager, for example, a manager is a real role on the team, but like in oh, software, right. manager has a common a... class name in Android. <laughs> yeah. And so there's a lot of funny things like that that just make namings like, should we name this how it is most accurate in baseball or how it's most accurate in like software programming? Makes sense. Are you doing persistence? Like, are you just storing things on the device? So I did this app exactly the way, I built this app exactly the way I would tell clients not to build apps because I knew that I wanted it to be incredibly UI forward and I really cared more about the animations and the transitions. I built a lot of the UI out first, figuring that I could just hook up the pieces later. And so 
we've hooked up the pieces. I think we've gone through three different like huge architectural changes just because we keep changing our mind of how we want to do it. And so we honestly haven't even gotten to persistence yet. So like it, it's all being stored in memory. And so if you deleted the app, like your scores would go away just because we keep changing how we want the like actual recording of the game to play with the UI. Makes sense. Yeah. Because I was curious if specifically on Android, because core data is sort of its own thing that is its own thing. Have libraries for persistence on Android gotten better at all? Because the built-in stuff for SQLite is, is bad, or at least it was, you know, three years ago. Yeah. So last year, Google released this architecture components library. And as part of that, they released a library called Room. Oh, yeah. You, we already talked about this. Yeah. There's like Room That's for Improvement. Right. And it's just a wrapper around SQLite, but it's exactly what you wanted it to be. It's much more close to an RM. Okay. So it's a lot nicer. So that's what we would use when we get there, if we can just right. agree on an architecture for more than a month at a time. <laughs> <laughs> it's very rare that Google, I feel like re- they've honestly, since last year's architecture components, I feel like they keep releasing things that are like actually based on what Android developers want. And I feel like for so many years before that, they were just releasing things that were technically good and we didn't realize that we wanted. Whereas now it's like we're asking for things and then they're delivering them. So it's pretty exciting. Yeah, I remember, uh, I guess it was probably four years ago when they released the library for network access. Uh, I don't know if it's Google. Not for network access, but but network IO, like HTTP call requests, that sort of stuff. Okay, HTTP. I don't think it was officially Google. No, that's that's from Square. Yeah. No, it was one from Google. I think I think oh. OKHTTP okay, switched to using this one from Google as a backend uh, uh. eventually, but I don't remember what it's called. It doesn't yeah. matter. I, I just remember it had a really funky API and was the sort of thing where it was like, once I got it working, I could see, okay, yeah, this makes, I understand why this is like, yeah, what problem this is solving, mm-hmm. but boy, this is not designed to actually be used by people. Yeah. Honestly, it's funny. If you ask me to build an Android app using only Android components for networking, I would have to read the documentation because for as long as I've been doing Android for the past three or four years, like Square has had networking libraries that I've always used because that's just, they're better and they're like more, the APIs are just better designed. So I haven't even used the native stuff. I'm trying to remember why I we weren't using OKHTTP because there was some specific reason yeah. that we couldn't use it. I think it might have, oh, you know, I think it might have been because we needed specific events to, to get fired every time a chunk was downloaded and we needed like really fine grain control over that and OKHTTP didn't have anything for that at the time. I yeah. think that was the reason. There's a problem in the web version too. Like, it mm-hmm. turns out making loading bars is really hard. Yes. Like, in, in, in JavaScript, there is a on-progress event that you, yep. can, that you can receive when a file is being downloaded. And there's a, a field that is documented. It'll always have the number of bytes that have been downloaded. Yep. And then there's a field that is documented to exist, but, but doesn't get set for any, by any browser, which is supposed to just there have the, the total number of bytes that are going to be downloaded but it's always set to undefined in every browser. So mm-hmm. you have to grab the content length header, which is fine. It's just yeah. a different part of your code where you would get that. So that's right. slightly annoying. But then also the content length header is going to be the number of gzipped bytes. But the on-progress bit that gets fired is the number of bytes that have been received after decompressing it. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. So you have no you have no way of knowing like how many compressed bytes have been downloaded or right. what percentage of the total number of bytes that have actually been sent. Yeah. So like the way we the way we did it in this one app was basically just based on the file type, 
we just had a lookup table of like, yep. here's what we think the compression ratio is going to be. Yeah. You know, and this was a progress bar that was supposed to show the progress of downloading like some unknown number of files. And in fact, after the first file got downloaded, we would then know how many other files to download. So right. it would like jump a little bit, you know, go forward and then jump back when the first file gets downloaded. Then it would jump all over the places as our compression ratio was slightly off. Yep. Progress bars are crazy because I feel like people like really trust them. And I feel like as engineers, I know that half the time, like you just have to fudge it because like getting, you know, accurate progress is just not always possible depending on what you're doing. Yeah. I mean, this one, it was really needed because the files we were having to send were, were large enough that without any, if we weren't giving any indication that something was happening, if you were on a slower network, like it just looked like the app was broken. Right. And we actually did. I, I was very curious if just saying the word loading would be enough. Yeah. We A-B, A-B tested it, and loading did better than having no indication that something was happening at all, but dramatically worse than having an actual yeah. progress bar. Because <laughs> I think for some users, like, it, was, it spent enough time loading that even if it just says loading, if you just see the word loading, there is an upper limit on how long you'll, you'll wait before you start to wonder if something's happening. Eventually yeah. got fixed by, by redesigning the file format we were using so that the file sizes were small enough that download size was no longer an issue, but that, oh. that, that was months later. That's like on um on iMessage. Someone told me once that the progress bar for like sending a message is totally made up. It has nothing to do with the message actually sending. It's just something that Apple shows you so you feel better. I would absolutely believe that. <laughs> it's totally arbitrary. Because sur- surely there's nothing they can actually show progress on. The thing that it takes the most amount of time is not upload. Right. Yeah. For whatever the size of a text message is, what like what? It's only like a couple kilobytes, right? Yeah, it'd have to be so tiny. Yeah. Unless you had like a ton of emojis in a picture, but then it's an MMS, so I'm not sure. Well, if you're sending a picture, that's that's right. then that's yeah, different. that's totally then I would game. Believe, then I would expect the progress bar maybe does something. Yes. But Agreed. I am <laughs> speaking of emojis. <laughs> I just love how you know, been a group of people who have been shouting for Unicode compatibility yes. for decades. Mm-hmm. And finally emoji is what made the as is what has made the world care. When you say Unicode compatibility, what do you mean? Well, so like MySQL, for example, it's UTF-8 collation yep. is three bytes, not Got four. It. So you can't actually store emoji in there. Because, but they, they uh, decided, you know what? But we're going to do this little optimization because surely nothing's ever going to actually go into the fourth right. byte. Yep. Or Java, Windows, and mostly Java and Windows have been historically really bad because they both designed all their APIs. Like they're both UTF-16 internally, and that's... Like, UTF-16 sort of the worst yeah. encoding to actually use. That's sort of a legacy of the fact that they both designed these APIs back when UCS2 was the thing, back when everybody thought, no, 65,000 characters is totally the maximum number we're ever going to need. Gotcha. It also just comes down to, like, people using APIs, for example, that, that take a byte offset into a string and expect yep. that to be the right thing to do. Uh, yeah. Like, it, it even just comes down to... There's actually a great article, which we'll, we'll put a link to in the show notes, Basically, it's a, it's a counter argument to people saying, no, UTF-16 is, is good because constant time indexing into a string is a thing that I want. And mm-hmm. it's basically a series of arguments that, number one, no, you don't have constant time indexing because UTF-16 cannot represent every code point in a single scalar. So it's still linear time to find the number of, of characters. Number two, character is actually a meaningless term. And if you really want to know how many bytes are going to be displayed in a single glyph, there's no actual solution other than asking the font. 
Yeah. And number three, like, you don't want any of this. No, getting getting access to an individual Unicode scaler by, you know, some offset is generally not a thing that you ever want to do. Right. Anytime that you care about Unicode scalers or code points, it's usually because you're doing something that's a well-defined algorithm that iterates over the whole string. And so linear time yeah. versus constant time access doesn't matter because it, the whole thing's linear time anyway. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but, you know, it's the sort of thing where, like, in JavaScript, you can just absolutely get a, a garbage character by doing, you know, string index one or something yep. like that because, that. because it offsets by byte, not by grapheme cluster. Yeah, scalar, I was going to, yeah. Whatever you would want to. I mean, it would have to be scalar is the only thing that you could really iterate over right. otherwise. But hey. strings are complicated, it turns out. Language is, is very complicated. Yeah, what do you think is more complicated, strings or time? Strings. Definitely yeah. strings. yeah. Time zones are a thing that is complicated, but is still simple right. enough to be able to hold into your head. Kind of. I guess, actually, I should caveat. Time is definitely simpler if you're only dealing with dates that are later than 1800 or so. Yes. <laughs> but even then, like, I find that Florida just decided to not... I forget if it's if we're all observing daylight savings or we're not observing daylight savings, but basically they're not going to change anymore. So they're just on one time forever. And so that's the kind of stuff where, like, any date between whenever we started doing daylight savings until 2018, Florida has one time zone, and now going forward, it's a different time zone. That's pretty miserable. So it's just like Arizona. Yeah, exactly. Daylight savings time isn't necessarily that complicated in that it's something that is a... I guess the thing that's complicated there is now Florida is a new time zone as opposed to Eastern. Yeah. But, you know, it's Arizona's time zone isn't inherently more complicated. It's, it's just right. it's, its own time zone. And whether or not daylight savings time occurs is, is a function of that time zone. And in fact, the dates that it occurs on is a function of the time zone as well. And yeah, ultimately, that all just comes out of a database, right? Yeah. I guess like it's just for like localization, I think, is when it starts getting really crazy, depending on like what the tooling, like how much you have to like determine on your, by yourself versus using a framework. And then the poor soul who has to write that framework that's doing all the crazy math. I do not have any interest in that. Right. Well, and of course, how time zones should should come into it is also something that is super, super context sensitive. Yep. Like if you create a piece of data on the East Coast and then go to the West Coast. Right. And you access that data later, what time should get displayed absolutely just depends on, on what you're doing. There's no real... Like if it's an alarm yeah. clock, certainly it'll show the same time yep. just in the new time zone. Whereas if it's a calendar event, yeah, probably... You want it to be absolute, but yep. even that's only a probably. And I don't know that I've seen any calendar give you the option of like, create this recurring event, but also keep it relative to wherever my phone is, not re not relative to UTC. Right. Yeah. I mean, the only thing that I like the I regularly experience is like when you, if I go to work some, like in New York and then like Google Calendar is like where, you know, like I notice that you're on the East Coast. Would you like me to update all your calendar events? But still, it's like the created time remains the same, like true Right, it's you know, just it's just asking whether whether, yeah. whether you want to show you show it right. to you and display Eastern it time to me. Not. Yeah. Now I'm just remembering the time I introduced a Y2K bug into an app. Oh gosh, <laughs> what was the bug? Because it was JavaScript, like dates got stored in a text field, so they were converted to strings, and there was no two ways about it. But yep. the text field had two digit years because it was user facing. Yeah. And it turns out that if you do that, Firefox will treat zero zero as nineteen hundred, mm. but or at least it did eight or nine years ago. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like they probably solved this. Well, I mean, I would actually be surprised if they change it. I, I would guess that maybe that, that eventually got standardized and maybe yeah. all browsers do the same thing now. But I mean, clearly the solution is just though don't parse strings with two digit years. Yeah. Strings again. Is that a time problem or a string problem? Yes. 
Uh, my favorite is Java and JavaScript, mm-hmm. the date class, which at least, you know, Java has had the date class deprecated since 1.0. But I love they both have zero indexed months. Oh my god, yes. I totally, like, totally agree. anybody think that was a good idea? I just came across this as uh, like a bug the other day where it was like displaying the wrong month. And I was like, oh, right. Like months have numbers. Like they have associated values already. We do not need yep. to like just... Oh, yeah. But it's only the month. It's not the day. Nope. Yeah. It's horrible. Yeah. Should we wrap up, you think? Yes. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 148. As always, ratings and reviews on iTunes are greatly appreciated. If you have feedback on this episode or any other episode, you can tweet us at underscore bike shed, email us at hosts at bikeshed.fm, or leave a comment on the show notes. Thanks so much. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, Raleigh, and Washington, D.C., let's build something great together.